Joining me today is Dr. Stephen Davies. Steve is the head of education at the Institute of Economic Affairs in London, the UK's original free market think tank. Previously, he was a program officer at the Institute for Humane Studies and the senior lecturer in the Department of History and Economic History at Manchester Metropolitan University. And he's the author of several books, including Empiricism and History, and he was co-editor of the Dictionary of Conservative and Libertarian Thought. But he joins the podcast today to discuss his book, The Wealth Explosion, The Nature and Origins of Modernity. How are you, Steve? I'm very good, and thanks for having me on this podcast. So what inspired you to write this book? Well, it actually grew out of a process of uh, intellectual rethinking, if you will, because for many years I'd been giving talks and lectures to various student uh, organizations and bodies, notably uh, the Institute for Economic Studies Europe's regular annual seminars at Gummersbach in Germany on the topic of how and why the West became rich, to quote the title of the uh, well-known book by Rosenberg and Birdsell, which came out quite a few years ago. And what I came to think was that the story I was telling in those lectures was actually mistaken, because there is a kind of view of this uh, question, which is very popular amongst what you might call the free market side of politics, which is that there's something peculiar and distinctive about Europe, which you can trace back for a very long time, as far back as uh, many say the 12th century, many, some would even go further and say as far back as the 7th or 8th century. Uh, and it was this distinctiveness about Europe which made the modern world first appear in that part of the world. And I came to the conclusion, having read a whole lot of other more recent historical research, that this was actually mistaken. Uh, that there was actually something else going on. And so I was interested in the big question of exactly how and why the modern world and the things that make our world, the modern world, different and distinct from all previous human history, how and why those things first came to begin in Northwestern Europe rather than another part of the world. So what does define modernity? Uh, could you go through some of the ways yeah. that the modern world differentiates uh, itself and that of our ancestors? Well, that's a huge question, of course, and uh, the, the kind of sceptical historians argue that there is that it, it, there is no such kind of concrete thing as modernity, it's just a label we stick on the recent past. But I would argue, and I think actually most historians, sociologists, political scientists would agree that that's not true, that there is something which we can call modernity and that it's very distinct from what came before. So modernity essentially is a state of affairs uh, which begins to appear in Northwest Europe in roughly the second half of the 18th century, maybe a bit before then, but not much, uh, and which has gradually spread out or appeared rather in other parts of the world. So that now, in fact, pretty much the whole world is modern. Now, what does it mean to say that? Uh, well, to say that a part of the world is modern is to say that it has certain things. The most important and central one is sustained intensive growth. Now, that is worth unpacking. Historically, there are two kinds of economic growth. 
One kind, which is called extensive, is where you do more with more. You have more output by increasing the inputs. So if you have a larger workforce because of population growth or the existing population works longer hours, uh, both of which have happened historically, then you get more output. Uh, similarly, you can get more output if you have more capital or if you expand onto previously uninhabited or unused land. But in all of these cases, extensive growth, there's no increase really in what economists call total factor productivity, the productivity of the basic resources uh, that human beings have at their disposal, natural resources, land in the language of economists, uh, capital saved up production and human labor. Uh, so you don't get a rise in living standards. You just get more output from more inputs. There's no increase, therefore, in the efficiency of the productive process. And so living standards do not increase. Uh, and for the great majority of human history, most economic growth, although not all, uh, which is an important point, uh, is of that kind. And what that means is you do not get a rise in living standards. Now, by contrast, modern growth is mainly intensive growth. And intensive growth is where you get an increase in total factor productivity. You get more output for the same or even less input. Uh, so even though there may indeed be more capital, there may be more uh, natural resources being used, when, even when you allow for that, you find that you're getting a more productive use of those resources, those inputs. The process itself has become more productive. And intensive growth, if it's sustained for long enough, uh, leads to a rise in living standards and a rise in incomes, uh, which in turn means a radical transformation of the everyday conditions of human life. And so that's the first really big feature of modernity. It's a state of affairs in which you normally experience sustained intensive growth over very long periods of time, over 200 years by now. And this in turn brings about a complete transformation of the material conditions of human existence so that people, for example, no longer uh, die in very large numbers in the first year of their life. Uh, normally, historically, about one per child in four would die in the first year of life. One in three if you lived in a town or a city. Uh, the great wealth that the modern world has created means that that is no longer the case. Uh, similarly, in the past, there were only a limited range of opportunities or options for most people. Uh, the great majority of people became peasant farmers because that's simply what most people had to do in order to feed the small minority who were not engaged in agriculture. Uh, today in the modern world because of intensive growth there's an enormous array of different kind of uh, careers, jobs, lives, lifestyles that, that are open to people. So that's the first big difference. The second big difference which is related to that is urbanization. Uh, the modern world is a world where the majority of people live in cities. The first society in the world to have this situation was Britain, where in 1851, according to the census of that year, the majority of the population lived in large towns or cities. Uh, according to the United Nations, this now became the global situation about 10 to 12 years ago. 
And that is something historically completely unprecedented because historically 90% of the population would live in the rural areas or small towns. Uh, there are very, very few parts of the world where more than 10% of the population live in large towns or cities. Uh, cities with a population of more than 100,000 people are historically very rare, whereas now there are several thousand of them. And so that's the second feature. We've moved from a world where the normal experience of human beings is to live uh, in low density rural environments to one where the normal experience, or the experience of the majority anyway, because there's still quite a lot living in the rural areas, is to live in large towns and cities. And that's a fundamental change in the not just the physical environment within which human beings live, but also the uh, social experience that they have, because there are profound differences between the life of the city and the life of the country, as people have been pointing out, you know, from the ancient Greeks onwards. So that's the second big difference. The third big feature uh, is more vague, but undoubtedly real. And that is the cultural difference between the modern world and the pre-modern world. Uh, a number of, you know, social scientists, historians have written about this. The modern world has certain distinctive cultural features, rationalism, individualism, uh, a focus upon the autonomous or self-defined individual, as opposed to having your identity determined by things over which you have no control, such as the location of your birth, who your parents were, what your ethnicity or race is, things of that sort, uh, and move away from that to a much more self-defined individualism. But also, as I said, rationalism, a focus upon uh, reason and the experimental and scientific method as a way of finding out about the world, as opposed to relying upon tradition uh, and also authoritative uh, religious or secular beliefs that are enforced by an authority. So that's another major difference between the modern world uh, and the pre-modern world. And it's important in this context to realise that modern does not mean, in this sense, a specific historical period. It does mean that, but that's not the primary me uh, meaning. Uh, what it means rather is a way of living and a form of social existence which has the qualities I've just described. And that mode of many parts of the world have only just become modern in the last 20, 50 years. Other parts of the world have been modern for longer. Uh, but the point therefore is that we're not talking about something which happened suddenly all over the world around 1750 or 1800. We're talking about a process that, a process actually, that began in about 1750 but which is only within my own lifetime and probably just your own lifetime reached the and encompassed the entire planet. So we'll move to why it started where it did in a moment. Yeah. Why do you think it started when it did this well, dramatic change? That's, that's the core question that the book is concerned with. Um, to step back a bit, I said a moment ago that in the pre-modern world or the non-modern world, uh, the normal pattern of economic life uh, is to be marked by either no growth at all or where you do find growth, extensive growth rather than intensive. However, you do need to qualify that statement because periodically in certain times and places, you get what the um, historian Jack Goldston calls efflorescences episodes or outbursts of intensive growth and economic dynamism. 
these, some of these are very well known, such as the lands around the Mediterranean, the Roman Empire, during the second century, the second half of the first century, most of the second century. Uh, the Middle East under the Abbasid Caliphs in the eighth century. Uh, Gupta India in the fourth and fifth centuries. And most notably China uh, in the uh, 12th and 13th centuries. And during these periods and in these specific locations, you do find many of the features of modernity. You find intensive growth, you find a move towards greater urbanization, you find a move towards more rationalism, a more skeptical scientific approach to the study of the uh, physical world and of human existence. But the point is they do not last. They are typically short-lived and they end in a kind of crisis. Now, one of the things I would say, by the way, is that if you think about history in this way, you move away from the stadial model of history in which you have a succession of stages of social and economic development. Uh, the famous one is the one we find in Marx, where you have uh, primitive communism, slave-based society, feudalism, and then capitalism, which he thinks is going to lead on to another stage, socialism. He actually got that from Adam Smith, who had exactly the same uh, model, except he had an extra stage, pastoralism, between uh, primitive hunter-gathering society and feudalism. And he also, of course, thought that commercial societies, he called it, uh, was going to be the final stage of human development, not succeeded by socialism. But that stadial model of history is found right across the ideological and intellectual spectrum today. And in fact, I think it's false. Uh, you could say that capitalism is not a stage of human history or of historical development, nor is feudalism. You find both feudalism and capitalism, as commonly understood, recurring over and over again in different parts of the world. And so these episodes of economic dynamism and innovation that I've mentioned, the efflorescences of Jack Goldstone's account, are actually previous historical episodes of capitalism. If you look at the Roman economy of the second century AD, you think, wow, this looks an awful lot like a, an early form of a capitalist economy. It's got large firms, it's got a complex finance and banking system, an elaborate and sophisticated monetary system, it's got an elaborate division of labour, it has factories, uh, gastuli as the Romans call them, um, it's got uh, large firms and business organisations, a credit market, the same is true with knobs on, you might say, about Song China, China in the 12th and 13th centuries. And so what you get, in other words, is episodes of capitalism historically, which are marked by the same features that we get in its modern form, the things I spoke about a moment ago, uh, intensive economic growth and the like, but they don't last. Uh, they end in a crisis and then basically uh, they're replaced by something else and you get a reversion back to the historical norm of economic stagnation and lack of economic innovation and dynamism. And the uh, the usual successor state, not always, but usually, is actually feudalism. Uh, contrary to the kind of notion that capitalism grows out of feudalism and then is going to lead on to something else, what you actually find is that historically, feudalism of one kind or other tends to grow out of uh, these capitalist episodes 
uh, as well as preceding them. So you find that therefore you have blips or episodes of um, de development, if you will, but they don't last. Now, the key question therefore, in a way, is why is it that the episode of this kind that occurred in Northwestern Europe in the 18th century did not suffer the same fate as its predecessors? Why did it last rather than uh, coming to end in a crisis? And again, this brings us to another key point, which is, well, what is the central feature that underlies both the economic growth, the urbanization, the individualism, and all the cultural phenomena I've described? What is it that drives all of these things that is, if you like, the motor of modernity, to go back to what we talked about earlier? And I agree with Deirdre McCloskey that the key factor is sustained innovation. This is the sort of Joseph Schumpeter explanation for where economic growth comes from. Uh, the key factor of modernity, the key element, if you like, the magic ingredient, is sustained innovation. Now that goes with a whole lot of other things. In particular, it goes with things like free discussion uh, and intellectual and social and cultural liberty. Because if you don't have those things, you're not going to have innovation. Because innovators, by definition, are people who create something new, which means very often that it's something that contradicts or runs against the conventional rules and norms and very often the explicit rules and norms of the established society and therefore typically innovators have a very hard time uh, they're very liable to be burnt at the stake or driven out of the village or generally treated very harshly because they're doing something which is blasphemous they're asking questions that shouldn't be asked they're doing things that have not been done before uh, which are liable to bring down the wrath of the gods uh, and as many people would think. And so therefore, the key question is, why does innovation persist in the case that we're now living in the last stages of, um, the one that began in Northwest Europe in the 18th century, why was it cut short in previous episodes, such as most notably Song China? Uh, and in the book, I look at Song China as the kind of case study in how uh, these earlier episodes of uh, capitalism, dynamism, innovation, intensive growth were cut short and did not last because most historians who've looked at this would agree that it's Song China, 12th and 13th century China in particular, that is the closest to a previous episode of modernity and had, had that persisted, we would be incredibly rich, no doubt, and we would be talking about the Industrial Revolution of the 14th century in China rather than, as we now are, the Industrial Revolution uh, of the 18th century, 19th century in uh, England and Britain. So that's, the key, that's what I mean. So the question, therefore, you're asking is, well, why does this all happen uh, in Northwest Europe? Why does it sustain itself? Now, there's a number of explanations, and this brings me back to the point I started off with about why I first became interested in this question. A lot of people tend to think, well, there are two different questions, really, which produce four different positions. One question is, is there something peculiar about Europe? Uh, is Europe somehow different or distinctive? And the second question is whether or not um, capitalism, this phenomenon of economic dynamism and innovation that I'm talking about, is a good thing or a bad thing. 
uh, and does it have good origins or not as well. And that produces four kind of positions, if you will. So on the one hand, uh, you have people who think that Europe is somehow distinctive and capitalism is good. And that's the kind of position that is dominant amongst what you might call the free market side of politics. On the other hand, you have people who think uh, that, yes, Europe is distinctive, uh, but capitalism is bad or at least regrettable. And this is the view of, of Marx, uh, although his view is more nuanced than that, uh, but also of a whole range of modern uh, scholars who think that basically, yes, there is something distinctive about Europe, but what is distinctive about it is bad. It's that Europe is uniquely exploitative or aggressive or imperialist, and that's what gives rise to uh, modern capitalism. Uh, and then on the other hand, you have people who say, well, nothing special about Europe. Um, the only thing that really makes uh, modern the modern world start in Europe is something, some stroke of luck, uh, basically. Uh, particularly, the thing that's commonly drawn attention to is the discovery of the new world and the subsequent transatlantic slave trade and slavery. And so the argument is that basically uh, capitalism appears in the modern world, the modern world appears in Northwest Europe because of a pure stroke of luck. Uh, and both that stroke of luck and the subsequent uh, outcome of it is bad. Uh, and then finally, you've got my view, which is that there's nothing distinctive about Europe, but markets and capitalism are good. Now, that's different from the first view I described. A common notion is the idea that at some point um, in the Middle Ages, Europe became different from other parts of the world. European civilization in the aftermath of the collapse of the Roman Empire, according to these kind of scholars, people like David Landis, uh, Rosenberg and Birdsall, Nathan Rosenberg and Leo Birdsall and others, uh, Douglas North, developed a unique set of institutions, uh, or it also developed a unique culture. Uh, and Christianity is often given the credit or for this, uh, particularly through the church's transformation of the family system of uh, medieval Europe, something that undoubtedly did happen. And the argument is that this made Europe more dynamic, more innovative, more inventive than other civilizations. And as a result, it became the place where sustained innovation took root. The, there are two big problems, however, with that model. The first is, if Europe is already different from the rest of the world by the 12th century, why does it then take 700 years or 600 years for it to actually have an effect? Why is it so slow in working out? And that, that makes the whole question much more difficult. It means that the distinctiveness of Europe is not enough by itself to have created uh, sustained modernity. Something else must have come along in addition that did that. And that other thing must be the thing that actually triggers it and explains why it first occurs and then sustains itself in Northwest Europe. And then the second problem with that is that when you start to look at the things that people say are peculiar and distinctively European, you discover that no, they're not. You find them in many, many other parts of the world. So a lot of the things that people say are distinctively European, like institutions like the company, uh, private property rights, which are strictly enforced, which is Douglas North's explanation, 
explanations of the kind that emphasize say individualism or or skeptical materialism you find these in all the other parts of the world that i mentioned you find them in gutter india you find them in song china you find them in even second century rome uh, you find them in other parts of the world i haven't mentioned uh, tokugawa japan for example and so you you find that the more you look into the past the more you realize that this supposed distinctiveness of europe is um simply not correct so that still leaves us with a puzzle um if what you have in europe in the 18th century is not something that happens because of anything distinctive in europe uh, it's this well long-run distinctive in europe i should say uh, the question still then is well why does this episode sustain itself so the key question you need to answer really is why do these previous episodes come to an end and that was really the kind of question i wanted to explore in the book which i'm going to return to i think in uh, years to come and the conclusion i arrived at was that there are two reasons why historically innovation tends to not sustain itself the first reason is this our ancestors up until who are not living in the modern world or who are not living in a world shaped by the processes we call modernity they lived in a Malthusian world. They lived in a world of very stringent and rigid limits on what human beings could do. Uh, limits of resources and the ability and capacity of human beings to exploit those resources, which meant that there was a limit, as Malthus said, to the number of people that you could find in any part of the world, but also a limit to the ways in which they could live. There were certain things you simply couldn't do. You simply could not have more than 10% of your population living in towns and cities, because otherwise you wouldn't be able to produce enough food and everyone would starve. And apart from a few very special parts of the world, which were fortunate in some way. So the, the world of Malthusian limits led our ancestors to evolve and create a whole series of social institutions and norms which were designed to enable our ancestors to cope with uh, the problems and difficulties of living in a world of limits. Now, these institutions and practices are what some scholars call the, the moral economy. They're a series of rules of governing behavior, uh, which ensure that basically most people are protected to some degree against the exigencies and accidents of life such as famines or natural disasters the basic principle behind them is either everyone starves or nobody starves uh, now what that means however is that they are hostile to innovation there are very powerful social practices norms institutions which inhibit innovation and the reason makes perfect sense because in a Malthusian world, innovation is very, very risky because most innovations fail. And so if you use up scarce resources on a new innovative way of doing things, those resources are probably going to be wasted in most cases. Uh, and that might be the difference between making it through the winter and starving to death. So you can see why people are very skeptical of and hostile towards innovation, because it's very, very dangerous. But the paradox is that it's only innovation and sustained innovation that will enable you to, to escape from that Malthusian trap. 
And so in order for an episode of innovation to be uh, sustained in the long run, as the modern one has been, you have to get find a way of breaking down or getting round those social constraints, those social structures, norms and rules that inhibit innovation. But the other part of this is an active, the other part of this story is an active role played by people with power, uh, religious and political elites, basically, kings and priests, if you will. And elites have a complicated relationship to uh, innovation and economic growth. If you're a king, on the one hand, you want innovation because it means that your subjects are richer, which means you can tax them more, which means you can build a bigger palace, fight more wars, usually the second, because that's what kings spend most of the time doing. Uh, and so you want it. But on the other hand, you don't want too much of it because to the extent that your subjects become wealthier, they start to escape your control. And also innovation necessarily involves asking questions, questioning why things are the way they are, why you keep doing things the way they've always been done. And so to the extent that you have a process driven by that kind of questioning outlook, it's going to lead people to question why you should do what the king says. Why should the social structure be the way it is? So it becomes a threat to your position uh, if you're in the elite. Uh, and of course, the fact that your subjects are now richer means that they're also therefore better able, more physically empowered to act against you. And so elites typically only want a little bit of innovation. And if it starts to become too great, they will tend to crush it and uh, stop it sometimes quite consciously and deliberately and the result of that is that it gets choked off so my explanation was that um, historically these episodes tend to be brought to a close by first of all a social crisis in which the process of innovation starts to run up against the inherited social structures which are designed to enable human beings to cope with a world of limits but also they tend to um, face opposition from elites uh, and you get a kind of unholy alliance between elites including by the way commercial elites who do not want innovation because that's going to produce upstart competitors who will destroy their position and also a large part of the population who don't just don't like change who are temperamentally hostile to change and innovation and this tends to block block it off the other problem finally is that very often you do hit malthusian limits what you find is that as the economy grows as you get intensive growth you do finally ultimately run up against hard malthusian limits natural resource limits now what innovation enables you to do is to break through those limits because you find new ways of doing it so to take the classic example, uh, Europe in the late, by the middle of the 17th century, has pretty much run out of wood, uh, which is a major source of fuel, obviously. They then, however, get around this by turning to other sources of energy, which initially is coal. Then by the late 19th century, there's a real panic that they're going to run out of coal. Um, and then what happens is you find a new source of energy, which is 
oil, basically, and oil products. And so that, that's just one example of the way in which innovation enables you, if you sustain it, to break through those uh, barriers. Now, finally, sorry for the length of this answer, the question then is, well, what is it that enables Western Europe, therefore, to the episode of modernity that we see in Western Europe to break through those two barriers, social structures and the attitude of ruling elites? And the answer I have in the book is that it's something purely accidental, um, which is this. In the 14th century, right around the world, you have a phenomenon which historians call the military revolution which is the transformation in warfare that's brought about by gunpowder and the defensive response to gunpowder. And what this leads to um, everywhere is a sudden huge increase in the destructiveness of war and in the scale of war. Uh, you go from having armies that are relatively small and also mostly not permanent to having large permanent military establishments which are uh, kept in place for year after year and which meet, which are very large. You're talking about armies of, you know, tens of thousands of men uh, in like, permanent existence. And this leads to warfare becoming vastly more destructive. And this leads to a huge ramping up of intra-elite competition in every part of the world. Now, in most parts of the world, what this leads to is the emergence of what are called by historians gunpowder empires. Places like the Russian Empire, the Mughal Empire in India, uh, Ming and then later Qing China, uh, the Osman Empire, the Uzbek Sultanate, the Safavid Iran and so on. And these uh, gunpowder empires control large parts of the planet's surface. Uh, and they are so powerful that they cannot be typically overthrown by any geopolitical competitor. They're just too large, too resource, have too resource rich to be overthrown. Now, initially, these gunpowder empires are good for trade, commerce, business, economic activity, because they create peace and stable government in a large part of the planet's surface. But what that means in the medium term, however, is that they double down, they intensify the process I described earlier of uh, social factors and the policy of elites constraining uh, innovation and economic dynamism. However, in Europe, uh, for I think purely contingent reasons, pure historical accident, this doesn't happen. If you were an observer from the Galactic Federation in uh, 1500 or 1520, you would have said it was pretty certain that Europe was going to go the same way as India, China, Russia and end up with a single dominant hegemonic power, become a single imperial regime. Uh, because one particular country or state, Habsburg Spain or the Habsburg Empire, the Empire of Charles V, had an enormously strong hand, but for contingent reasons, and above all the failure of his son to suppress the rebellion of the Dutch, this did not happen. Instead, what happens is that by 1648, Europe is divided into about a dozen large, powerful, but competing states. And what that means is that the elites in those states, the ruling classes in those states, face a different kind of incentive to the one facing most elites in most periods of history. 
they could no longer afford to suppress innovation or to support the social movements and institutions that, like guilds, for example, that tended to restrict innovation. Because if they did that, uh, they would lose out to their competitor monarchs or states who had been a bit more innovative than them. And as the case of Poland tells us, this could be terminal. I mean, Poland, one of the largest, most powerful states in Europe in the uh, late medieval period, by the end of the 18th century, no longer exists. It's being dismembered by its neighbours in the three partitions. And so from about the late 17th century onwards, European states, the Dutch, the British, the French, uh, the various German states, the Spanish, they have to uh, innovate uh, at almost any cost, because if they don't, they're going to be overcome by their more innovative neighbours. And so this means that the uh, elites increasingly actually encourage innovation. Now, the elite which is most pro-innovation is the British. And the reason for that is that the British elite from 1688 onwards is engaged in a life and death struggle with its extremely powerful neighbour, France. And the, in this competition, France has all the advantages. It has twice the territory of the British state. Uh, it has a slightly larger population. It's much richer. And so the British elite really has to do whatever it can to equal the playing field against the French. Uh, and what they turn to do, as Joel Mocha, uh, historian from Northwest University, has clearly shown, I think, is to quite deliberately encourage innovation. Uh, they deliberately use the power of the states, the British elite, to sweep away social norms, traditional laws and other institutions that inhibit innovation. And this pattern of elites then encouraging innovation has then gone on. It's become a distinctive feature of uh, the world since about 1720, 1750, because we are still living, as we can see today, with the competition between the United States and China, uh, or to be more precise, between the American elite and the Chinese elite, we are still living in a world where the elite that does not encourage or sustain innovation is going to lose out in geopolitical competition. And so we're living in a world where one of the crucial checks on innovation uh, that historically had always led to the termination of episodes of innovation has been removed. But you can trace that back, I argue in the book, to a very specific historical conjuncture, to use a French term, uh, which occurred in the second half of the 16th century, the failure of Spain to defeat the Dutch, basically. So given that uh, that's a great summary of the argument, but given that if those are the causes of modernity, mm. how fragile do you think that should lead us to believe that modernity is? What are the threats to modernity that we now face? Well, it does mean that, yes, it is fragile because um, the episode of the case of China uh, that I alluded to does indicate why there is an element of fragility. In China, what happened was that, first of all, they were conquered by the Mongols. Um, now, that was a disaster uh, in various ways and for various reasons. But it didn't, the Mongols, although they were very destructive, they didn't destroy the institutions and practices that had led to the amazing dynamism of the Song era. 
But when the Mongols are overthrown in 1368 by a man called Zhu Zhuang Chang, who goes on then to become the Hongwu Emperor and found the Ming Dynasty, the Hongwu Emperor and the Mandarin class, the Chinese uh, ruling class, they basically blamed the catastrophe of uh, the Mongol conquest on the policies that the Song had followed. And so they quite consciously and deliberately sought to get rid of the innovative dynamic economy and society of Song China. And they quite deliberately create a kind of counter-innovative state. And they create a kind of way of living and an economic structure that is actually extremely stable and very resilient. Uh, and the result is it survives right into the 20th century. And the result is that therefore China loses the quality of dynamism and innovativeness that it had had up until then. You have to realize that until the, um, until the 15th century, China had always been the most innovative society on the planet. Virtually all of the major inventions made up until then were first made in China. There were a few exceptions, but very few. China is clearly the most dynamic and innovative civilization. And after um, the late 14th century and early 15th century, although it remained an extremely sophisticated uh, culture and civilization, it lost that quality of dynamism and innovation. But this was by deliberate design. The Ming emperors and their senior civil servants, if you will, literal mandarins, uh, they were very smart people and they knew exactly what they were doing. And they were trying to create a society that would be stable uh, and which would be self-regulating and non-innovative. And they, they succeeded. It became a byword. Europeans in the 18th and 19th centuries, although they admired China in many ways, they also commented on the, what they called the stationary nature of Chinese society. And uh, that remained the case until the late 19th century when China begins to rediscover its innovativeness. So one great risk is that we do something like this. The, one of the great risks is that we create something like that system of rules that the Hongwu Emperor created in China, something which probably with the same goal in mind, uh, or some other goal, like for example, combating global warming, uh, prevents or chokes off innovation if that happens then this episode of uh, modernity that we've had will come to an end there are obviously other possible risks um things which could happen if we had a nuclear war for example that would obviously be the end of the modern world it would be the end of human civilization forever i imagine i don't think the human species would recover from that there could well be um certain kinds of natural disaster that would end it uh, and we would need, we do need to be aware of what these might be. Another possible uh, risk to think about is that uh, we might actually have, uh, and this is the dark side of innovation, we might actually have an innovation that proves to be terminal for us as a species or as a civilization. So many people are extremely worried about the prospects of artificial intelligence, for example, producing a form of AI which is both super intelligent and in the jargon of the nerds, unaligned, which means that it's not gonna do what we tell it to and it has interests of its own which are not compatible with human interests. So, you know, you might have a super intelligent AI which decides that human beings are a nuisance and the world would be better off without them. You know, we might have the Skynet scenario, you could say. Uh, and a lot of people are seriously worried about this. So it could well be that we actually um, 
it creates an innovation that brings modernity to an end or which uh, destroys us as a species. Uh, so again, we have to be very much on our guard against that and to think about how to deal with it. Um, and the final sort of risk, uh, fragility, there are two. Uh, one of them um, is natural, and that is a problem we faced a number of times before in the last 200 years, in the 1820s and also in the 1890s, uh, and also I think right now, and that is running up against natural resource limits. Uh, at the moment, we are facing a pretty serious challenge of um, accessibility of energy because energy is becoming increasingly constrained in terms of its supply. Now, what I am optimistic and confident in is that we will find a technological solution to this. But if we don't, then I think uh, the whole episode of modernity would indeed come to an end because we would no longer, we would have hit a natural limit and not been able to get through it. As I say, we've done this two or three times in the last 200 years. And each time, because the innovative process has been sustained, we've been able to find an innovation that would enable us to get round the resource barriers. Uh, but that's always a constant threat. There is always a threat that we may hit a barrier we can't get around. But the final problem is this. What I've argued just now is that what keeps the innovative process going and stops ruling elites from doing what comes naturally to them, which is to choke off innovation, is the fact that they're in a world of competition with other elites, that we do not have a global power elite or a global power monopoly. Now, I think one of the real risks at the moment um, is the tendency of the modern world to produce a single system of governance or rule. Since 1945, um, the United States in particular, and the Western powers more generally, have sought to make the world more orderly, more law-governed. Uh, and they've done this by creating a succession of regulatory institutions, beginning with GATT, and then going on to a number of others, the IMF, the World Bank, the World Trade Organization, and a whole succession of trade treaties and agreements. We call them trade treaties, but that's actually rather misleading. What they actually are is regulatory harmonization agreements. And what they do is to take away a great deal of discretion from national governments, so that instead of having national governments competing to see which kind of regulatory system is best, or what kind of approach to running your economy is best, the idea is to have a kind of uniformity of practice. And the, the quite explicit end of this, or goal of this, is to reduce intra-elite competition, to reduce competition between sovereign states, for good reasons. Because the problem is that one of the forms that that competition takes, of course, is wars, and you don't want that. Uh, so the, the, uh, the, the idea is that you end up with a kind of uniform system of rules and governance. The problem is that what that does is to weaken the competitiveness between the elites, which is what produces and sustains the, or rather sustains, the innovative process. So that's a big risk. Now, I actually think that risk is much less acute than it was a few years ago, because it's very clear right now that what we are seeing is the breakdown of that order uh, and the uh, reversion to a state of geopolitical competition. The war in Ukraine, uh, the clear 
breakdown in relations or progressing breakdown in relations between uh, the China and the United States and the West more generally are clear signs that we're reverting to a situation of geopolitical competition which someone like Bismarck would have been very familiar with. Now, that has a dark side, obviously. Um, the dark side is very much that, uh, you know, if we're not careful, we get wars like the one we're seeing at the moment in Ukraine. And that is obviously not a good thing. And it's also bad for uh, the process of peaceful innovation and uh, economic growth. But on the other hand, uh, elite competition, I think, is a good thing. What you do not want is a single global elite uh, if that, or a single elite regime, if you will, a regime of rules. Uh, if that happens, you will have... Uh, a state of stasis, if you will. Uh, inevitably, I think, whoever controls the elite that is formed by such a process will seek to stop innovation because they will see innovation as threatening something that is good, i.e. global peace or whatever else it is they want. And so that's something to be avoided. And that's the major thing to worry about, I think. So in, in some ways, although there are obviously very big downsides to this breakdown of the um, global order that was created after World War II and the return of geopolitical competition and armed geopolitical competition in some places, um, it, it does have actually, a, and strangely, an upside. So the big challenge really for statesmen and stateswomen at the moment is to walk a kind of narrow path uh, between keeping the geopolitical competition going, uh, but at the same time um, not uh, not straying over into the territory of actual armed conflict uh, between great powers, because that obviously would be a disaster. And of course, I mentioned a moment ago, the threat of nuclear war, because the problem is that we now live in a world with nuclear weapons and great power conflict has the great risk of resulting in a nuclear war, which really would be the end of everything. Uh, what would you say have been the strongest objections or criticisms you've received uh, to this theory on what well, causes modernity and how would you answer them? Well, there are several objections, but they, you see the objections come from different um, places uh, and, and therefore they're very, very different. Um, one objection I get repeatedly is to the is people who push back against my argument that Europe is not particularly distinctive. I do get a lot of pushback from people who in other ways are sympathetic to my cause who want to argue that there is something peculiar about Western Christian civilization. Um, and that therefore it, it's the distinctive features, cultural or um, religious or social of Western civilization, so-called, which we need to conserve or which are responsible for the good things we like about modernity. And my argument is that, that that's a fundamentally mistaken view of history. I don't regard that as a particular, although that's the commonest objection I get, I don't regard it as particularly persuasive, simply because I think the facts are overwhelmingly on my side. Uh, the, it, the, you simply cannot sustain, in my view, the argument that the things that people point to as reasons for Western civilizations um, being the first place to sustain an episode of um, intensive growth are peculiar to it. You find them all over the place. Uh, it's just that they happen to have um, had the opportunity to uh, work in the way they did for, as I say, contingent reasons. So I just don't, uh, I just don't find that plausible. Um, another, a more sort of strong argument is the argument which is um, 
in a way, I have to say for this one, well, there's no way of telling whether it's correct or not, which is the effect that, well, I haven't actually explained why something permanent has happened. I, my argument actually could lead, I've been told, to the conclusion that we're just living in the latest episode, like the ones that went before, and that we're going to end the same, have the same kind of fate as um, late Roman Empire, uh, Ming China, uh, post-Gupta India, and all the rest of it. We're going to go back to the long-run historical norm of uh, a non-dynamic, well, a non-growing civilization, if you will, or a non-innovative civilization. Uh, in other words, that limits will reassert themselves. Now, as I've said myself, actually, I concede the point that may well be true. Uh, we have to, you know, hope and trust that we can find the innovations that we need to overcome difficulties, which I think we are actually experiencing right now. Uh, and but I, I do think we can, because I think a lot of these difficulties are self-inflicted in various ways. Uh, quite apart from the, the fact that I'm confident in the uh, nature of the innovative process, so long as we can avoid the pit traps, uh, the pitfalls that might stop us doing that. So that's one objection. And then another objection, which I, I you know, you face is have had made to me, is that well, this is actually not really a, a satisfactory explanation because uh, the roots of uh, modernity in the modern world are in the kind of things that other historians have pointed to, things like uh, the growth in, simply the growth in world population by itself without any need for anything else. Uh, that's a common notion. Or that it's due to um, a kind of selective breeding effect uh, in Western civilization, which meant that uh, for various reasons, there was a higher proportion of people with uh, higher intellectual capacity, but also, um, a greater propensity to behave uh, less violently towards other human beings uh, than in other parts of the world. Uh, so on the, I think that second one, by the way, is completely false. And I think that the empirical evidence, again, does not support it. As to the argument, this is due to exploitation, which is the common rejoinder to me. The argument is what I'm doing is glossing over a brutal reality, which is that the wealth of the modern world originates from an exploitative process. Um, I think this simply misunderstands my response will be to say not so much is that this is wrong historically because undoubtedly there is a great deal of exploitation of quite brutal kind in the historical record it's that that is not the source of wealth um you do not actually ultimately create growing wealth uh, through the use of exploitative economic systems such as uh, rent extraction from dependent conquered territories, imperialism in other words, uh, or slavery or things of that sort. What that does actually is to enrich small minorities, but it doesn't lead to a general increase in uh, social wealth, social well-being, social benefit. Uh, that's the great argument, one of the great arguments against things like slavery as a key economic institution. It works really nicely for a small class of slave owners, but it doesn't work well for creating wealth for society as a whole. So if the explanandum, the thing you're trying to explain, is why we are, on average, 30 times richer than our ancestors were 200 years ago, uh, an argument this is ultimately driven by an exploitative power-based relationship doesn't stack up because when you look at the uh, actual economics of it, uh, what those kind of relationships lead to is a process of um, the great majority actually being 
the very best, no better off, and actually usually in most cases significantly worse off, uh, and a small minority being better off. And that's not what we perceive, because what we perceive is that actually uh, over the last 250 years, everyone has been become better off. And although at the moment we've got a slight widening in uh, income, some income gaps, in fact, globally, uh, the great bulk of the gains have gone to the, uh, the the mass of the global population and not to an elite. It's a misconception to think that the um, elite are a small, the 1%, as we commonly call them, are the ones who are reaping all the benefits. That's to project what is currently going on in places like the United States onto the planet as a whole. And if you look at the world as a whole, that's simply not true. Uh, so I think that that kind of rejoinder um, is... A, simply mistaken in terms of its understanding of how economic growth happens or how social transformation happens. It misunderstands uh, the degree to which real social transformation and social amelioration, social improvement, not just economic, but more general, uh, depends upon voluntary action and innovation driven by voluntary exchange and individual exploration and discovery rather than the use of power and exploitation. So there's a, there's a fundamental error of sociology uh, and economics going on there. Thank you, Steve. This has been fascinating. And the book again is The Wealth Explosion, The Nature and Origins of Modernity. Be sure to check it out. Thank you very much. Thank you.